Well, we've finally uh, arrived at the most famous section of the book of Hebrews, the Bible's roll call of faith, found in chapter 11. And you might want to know that in my personal view, outside of God himself, faith is probably the single most important subject in the Bible. For this reason, I'm going to spend at least four weeks on this chapter. Now, by the way, it came to my attention at least 27 times this morning that the bulletin is wrong this week. Apparently the print shop printed last week's bulletin again. It was suggested maybe I should just preach that sermon again. Um, not going to do that. Uh, so just scratch out all those things and make your own notes if you wish. And uh, I'm sure we'll kind of update you on some of the announcements um, later on. Personally, uh, as I study chapter 11 of Hebrews, it seems to me that the author has three major goals. First, he wants to define, or better yet, explain faith to us. Second, he wants to demonstrate faith through the examples of our spiritual forebearers. And third, he wants to encourage or inspire us to actually practice a similar kind of faith in our daily lives. And so we will approach this chapter in, in, in three parts. Um, faith explained today, and then faith exemplified will take at least two messages, and then faith encouraged. Today's message may be the most intellectually challenging of the three. After all, how does one explain faith? Perhaps there's a reason the New Testament is not full of definitions, even for something as crucial as faith. In truth, some of the most important things of God are nearly impossible to define with human words. That said, the inspired writer, inspired writer of Hebrews does his best, and so let's read what is perhaps the Bible's only overt attempt to define faith. From chapter 11, starting with verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the men of old gained approval. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, so that what is seen was made out of things, was, was, uh, what is seen was not, there's the missing word, was not made out of things which are visible. And then from verse 6, And without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. <coughs> I don't believe anyone has ever done a better job of defining faith than this. In my opinion, that first verse in particular is one of the most important single sentences in the Bible. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. This is the classic biblical definition of faith. And from this sentence we see, first of all, that faith is assurance. There's your number one if you're a note taker. Faith is assurance. We do need to understand that faith is being sure. Uh, some of you know Pascal's wager. That, that doesn't really work. <laughs> um, I'll just leave that there for you to Google later if you don't know. Faith is being sure. Faith is bigger and more certain even than hope. 
I think we can say that faith is assurance that our hope is well-founded. It's interesting to know that the original Greek word uh, translated here as assurance paints a picture of something supportive, something that stands up underneath your life. It's there to hold you up. Indeed, biblical faith is a picture of a foundation. This verse literally says faith is the foundation of hope. And not just any foundation, but a sure foundation. Faith can be counted on because faith is assurance. But this cannot be the end of the conversation, can it? No, we must keep asking questions to get to the bottom of it because by itself, the idea that faith is foundational does not appear to be true. Think about it for a moment. Does it seem like to you that faith, in a generic sense, is a strong foundation? Now, people have faith in all sorts of things, and they are sure about all sorts of things, and yet they can still be both wrong and unstable. Their faith rests on shifting sand, and therefore is a poor foundation. For this reason, we need also to ask, what is the foundation of this faith that is so sure? Where do we really get assurance when it comes to faith? Specifically, why should we be assured in our Christian faith, that which is spoken of in our text? In other words, who or what are we placing our faith upon? This would obviously be important if there is to actually be assurance. So let's think about where we find the assurance of faith a little bit more. In the first half of the 20th century, there was a particularly cynical journalist named H.L. Mencken, who was perhaps most famous for his satirical reporting of the Scopes trial, also known as the Monkey Trial, in which a school teacher stood up for the teaching of creationism as an option in the classroom. In response, by the way, this was in the first half of the 20th century. Did you hear me say that? This is way back. In response, Mencken, a, propor- a proponent of Darwinism, wound up printing his own derogatory definition of faith, defining it this way. Faith, illogical belief in the occurrence of the impossible. Apparently, this supposed intellectual thought he was saying something particularly pejorative in this, but one of several weaknesses in his attack on faith is that no one really knows what is possible and what is not possible. How many feats thought to be utterly impossible in Mencken's half of the 20th century are quite possible today? At some point in our history, for instance, a few scientists began to have faith that humans could fly to the moon. Most of the world thought this was an illogical belief in the occurrence of the impossible. And yet the faith of a relative few eventually became reality. Apparently faith in the impossible is not necessarily illogical. It would seem quite impossible that the earth and all of its complexities would somehow come into existence, and yet here it is. The existence of stars, planets, the diversity of life on earth, or even a single human cell seems utterly impossible. If stars and planets coming into existence on their own is not impossible, one must wonder what is. And yet here we are. Does it take faith 
to believe we exist then? As I look at all of you living, breathing, and impossibly complex organisms this morning, I admit to believing that you are real. Apparently, I have an illogical belief in the occurrence of what appears to be impossible. I have faith that you exist. You might say, there are logical explanations for how we may have gotten here. Debatable, I suppose it's true in some ways. But each of those explanations, including God doing it, as well as any other theory, really seems quite impossible when you look at it. And for the record, there's no reasonable theory for the existence of life. Neither the Big Bang Theory nor Darwinism even attempt to logically explain life from lifelessness. Remember that. See, my friends, when it comes to the origins of life, as an example, it is not only faith in the impossible if it is faith in God, but it is also faith in the, in the impossible if it is faith against God. Here's the point. The strength or weakness of faith depends completely upon the object of that faith. Not the person having faith or the particular, uh, particular faith being had. And the assurance of the things we hope for in the context of Scripture, the foundation of our faith in the things of God or in things like eternity, in the supernatural, or the reason behind our faith in spiritual and unseen truths that some would call religion is none other than the identity of God Himself. Yahweh God is the object of our faith, the reason for the assurance of the kind of faith being spoken of in our text. If God is, then our faith is well-founded. If He is who He says He is, then our faith is saying, our faith is far from illogical. But rather it is the only reasonable choice. Our text is saying that faith in God is the assurance. Faith in God is the assurance. Certainly not faith in a generic sense or just the fact that we believe it, which really would be faith in faith. But no, rather it is by faith in God, with Him as the direct object of our faith, that we have assurance that we will receive the things we hope for. Indeed, since logically there must be a first cause, then God is not only possible but necessary. God is the most necessary thing in our reality. Everything else then would depend completely upon Him. Thankfully, He is utterly dependable. True faith is not wishful thinking. It's not a rational mythology or even just a choice to believe in something regardless of the evidence against it. On the contrary, true faith is assurance. It is the assurance that God must be that's where it begins. Biblical faith is as sure as the God of the Bible, who thankfully chose to reveal Himself rather than leave us guessing. The God of the Bible is our assurance that those things we hope for, those things He has promised in that same Bible will come true. So, if you want this assured kind of faith that brings hope, you'll need to place your faith in the only person worthy of it. That is, the person behind life itself. Without faith in this one who called himself Yahweh, 
there's no assurance of anything. Without faith in Him, maybe, maybe there's not even assurance that, we act, assurance that we actually exist. Zen Buddhists, anybody? If there's no explanation for how we got here, if you want wishful thinking that does not lead to assurance, place your faith in whatever you wish to believe. But if you want the assurance that comes in knowing the truth, place your faith in God. Now, let me go a little bit deeper still. By way of foreshadowing the next week, know that the rest of the chapter shows us more specific aspects of faith through the examples of those who went before us. But even today, I want to go ahead and ask this question. When it comes to the kind of faith being spoken of in our text, where does assurance, assurance really come from? I've said that faith in God brings assurance. Not just faith in faith or faith in whatever, but faith in God brings assurance, while faith in other things does not. But now I'm asking specifically, where does our faith in God come from? It comes from the Holy Spirit. Those who have faith in God's salvation, Jesus Christ, receive the Holy Spirit, Romans 8, 9. And the Holy Spirit brings a whole other level of assurance, even as by faith you receive Him. When God comes into your life, you are given a whole other level of faith. In fact, this entrance of God into your life is the greatest of all of faith's rewards, as we will see later. All that said, even as a saved person, indwelled by the Spirit of God, have I ever struggled with moments of doubt? Have I ever not felt assurance in my soul for a season? Yes, there have been those moments. It has happened to me. But all it has taken is a little bit of seeking on my part, and the Spirit always comes through to refuel my assurance once again. But what does this also mean about assurance? It means we need God's help with it. And that is precisely my point. Listen, faith in God brings assurance because faith in God brings God Himself. This could be thought of as the thesis of today's text. Faith in God brings assurance because faith in God brings God Himself. Ultimately, God is the one who brings assurance, you see, through your faith. Put your faith in God, and He will take care of the assurance part. Do You see, assurance comes from God, and God comes through faith. I'll also mention briefly that faith is different the first time and all the other times. The moment of salvation, faith is new and radically transformational. But after that, faith becomes something like an old friend. Before salvation, faith in God has no context in your life. But at the moment of saving faith, there is a conversion of the heart, wherein spiritual deadness is quickened to life. And through a mysterious combination of God's choice and your response, wherein you actually believe in Christ and His gospel, you are born again or saved which means there's a, mo a movement of your soul from darkness to light, an internal healing through forgiveness and grace. Indeed, an experience that will leave you a different person, though you may not realize the extent of it immediately. 
Some of us also know that after salvation, for the rest of our lives, faith can be like a memory, a desire to hear the sound of his voice, the recollection of past assurances, moments with God, as well as those new moments when the Spirit makes his presence known and your heart finds peace, comfort, and yes, this very assurance that fuels hope, the knowing that you know that it's all true, that it's all real, that it's all God, assurance from God. Yes, that's it, exactly. Some argue about how much of faith is a choice or how much of it is a decision or how much of it is imputed by God or all of the different edges of opinion out there. But what I want to say to you today as your pastor is this. I've said it once already. Faith in God brings assurance because faith in God brings God. So first of all, faith is assurance. And secondly, faith is conviction. Our text says, now faith is the conviction of things not seen. But where does this conviction come from? Conviction comes from evidence. Conviction comes from evidence. This is true in a court of law, and it's true in our own faith journey. Evidence convinces us. And so nobody should ever ask a pre-believer to check his or her brain at the door of the church. I certainly don't ask anyone to do that. The smarter you are, the better. Bring all the brains you can muster to Christianity. Conviction comes from evidence. Now, there are different types of evidence. There is the empirical kind of evidence, and there's also a more experiential kind of evidence, which in this case might also be thought of as spiritual evidence. There is the evidence of spiritual experience, and there's the evidence of physical proof. There is that kind of internal evidence, something we can't quite describe, but there is also the kind of evidence that we would use in an argument, say for intentional creation versus more random or naturalistic view of the universe coming into existence. Regardless of the type, conviction comes from the evidence. In fact, the word evidence can accurately be used in place of the word conviction in this verse. The King James Version actually puts it, faith in the evidence of things unseen. The Greek word here is elenkos. Strong's lexicon defines it like this. A proof, that by which a thing is proved or tested, or conviction. Evidence, proof, or conviction. Any of these words could rightly be used in a translation of this verse. And so, it's saying that the conviction of things unseen comes from the evidence. Our faith is fueled by evidence, which can lead to a stronger and stronger conviction about things that we cannot see with our eyes. Interestingly, conviction is never finite or fixed at any point. Conviction can grow. Conviction can increase. Whereas assurance is pretty much all or nothing. Either you are assured or you're not. Conviction 
can vary by degree. Why does this matter? Because somewhere in our definition of faith, we need to leave room for growth. See, there is saving faith, and God knows where that point rests, where that point rests. But then there is the faith that should grow throughout your life. And I'm telling you from this text that this conviction kind of faith grows from the evidence. Stronger conviction comes from more and more evidence. Potentially both from empirical evidence and certainly also from experiential evidence. Back to the base level though, where conviction is more general belief in something. I do think we are to understand from this text that even the initial spark of faith that, um, that we have comes from evidence. Why should we believe? From a feeling? No. Because we want something to be true? No. There's a certain amount of evidence that will be needed if you are going to develop a conviction about things unseen. Some require more evidence than others. And remember, again, there is more than one kind of evidence. But based on this verse, some kind of evidence will be needed if real faith is to blossom in your heart. Even for young children to really put their faith in Jesus, there will need to be one kind or another of evidence, even if it's the more experiential kind. For it to be real, at the very least, God will be making himself evident to that child. As people get older, often other kinds of evidence will be helpful as well. I do not believe in unicorns. I, I, I have to stop and tell you the last time I said that in a church, a lady raised her hand. I do! <laughs> Why? Why? Why do I not believe in it? There's no evidence. I was trying to pick something, you know. There's a lot of things I could have said where it would have been like debatable. I thought unicorns, I was okay. No. <laughs> There's no evidence for unicorns. Nor is there any logical reason to believe in unicorns. I have never experienced a unicorn, nor do I know anyone I trust who has. <laughs> Nothing has happened in my life that would convince me that unicorns are real. I have not heard credible testimony from others as to the existence of unicorns. I personally know of no reason to believe they exist. That's why I do not have faith in unicorns. In fact, hear this. The lack of evidence where there should have been evidence actually fuels my conviction that unicorns do not exist. I might add that it is for a similar reason that I do not have faith in macroevolutionism. The idea that all of the variety of life originated in a single organism. If that were true, the evidence of transitional forms in the fossil record should be overwhelming. Darwin himself said as much, thought they would eventually be found, they haven't been. Such evidence does not exist. Not of macroevolutionism, no. Therefore, I reject large-scale amoeba-to-man evolutionism. The evidence should be there if it were true. But since it is not there, no thanks. Conversely, I do have faith or a conviction that God exists and that He is the God revealed in the Bible. 
and that He came to earth in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross for my sins, and that He was resurrected to life on the third day. Why do I have this conviction? Because of the evidence. And no, I'm not merely talking about experiential evidence here, but also empirical evidence in this case. Both types of evidence have, my, have me firmly convinced that God is real and that Jesus actually died and rose again to make a way for me to know Him spiritually, to have life with Him forever, according to His promise. In fact, my convictions about these truths have grown much stronger by looking at the evidence over the years. I have here a book as an example. It's one of those books that as soon as you open it and see that it's in two columns, you're not reading it. <laughs> Am I wrong? You know, that's a textbook, right? It's not something for real people to read. Well, depends on who you are, but I would recommend it. This is called Josh McDowell's uh, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. It's quite a scholarly book, making the case from the evidence for all the truths about God that I just mentioned and more. I believe this book to be full of convincing proofs that can empower faith, evidence that inspires conviction. In fact, McDowell could have called his book Evidence That Demands Conviction, or he could have called it Evidence That Demands Faith. I have an entire shelf full of such books. I am by nature, excuse me, sorry for the adjustment here. I am by nature a skeptic. I am. Thankfully God saved me as a young child. And so His Spirit was enough evidence for me. But because of the way my brain works, I still have moments in my life, I've had moments in my life when I struggle with doubt. And beyond that, I've been tasked with helping others through their doubt, which led me for years down a path of looking intently at the evidence. And guess what? That only led me to a stronger belief. I can honestly tell you that as an adult, it is the evidence, both kinds, that has convinced me that the story of the Bible is true. Both empirical and experiential evidence continue to lead me to even firmer convictions about God every day. These convictions that God has developed in me can also be called faith. How is faith defined again? Faith is the conviction of things unseen. And again, from where does conviction derive? From the evidence, both physical and spiritual, empirical and experiential. But friends, here again we can go deeper. Not to contradict what I said before, but there's a nuance here in which the inspired author is basically saying that faith itself is evidence for faith. <laughs> this is not to say that faith in faith is saving faith, nor am I saying that faith in faith brings about assurance, the first part we talked about. But the author does say here that my faith is evidence that brings conviction some more conviction, even by itself. I do not believe that good old KJV is wrong in rendering this. Faith is the evidence of things unseen. 
See, faith itself is a certain kind of evidence. This is not all the inspired author means here, as I've already explained, and yet taken at face value, I do believe he is saying that faith is evidence for faith. See, folks, I don't know how I can believe in the unseen, and yet I do. Why on earth do I believe? What drives me to believe? Some would say, just wishful thinking, but I know in my heart that my faith is more than that, or else I would never have gotten this far. I would, I would have no real hope, because I'm very honest with myself. And I know that I know that wishful thinking would not have gotten me this point as a believer. There's just no way. I would have walked away a long time ago, because I'm not a wishful thinking or a blind faith kind of guy. So how can I still believe with a childlike faith in a God that I cannot see? I don't believe in fairy tale figures, though I might wish to. Some who I believed in as a child, and yet I do believe in God, even as an adult, and with a firmer and firmer conviction. Why? Cynics say we believe in myths and legends, but I don't believe in any other myths or legends that I know of. I'm not by nature, a myth and legend believer. Now, some of you are. If you, you can just be honest. Okay, that's okay. That's okay. You know, God made us all there. I'm just, I'm a skeptic. I just don't believe that stuff. In fact, I'm going to make a statement today, a statement of faith. I hereby proclaim that I do not believe in aliens. I don't believe in aliens. I have a strong conviction that aliens do not exist. I have no reason to believe the recently invented mythology of aliens, something never conceived of until the last century. In fact, as a general rule, I tend to be quite pragmatic about most things. Truth is, I struggle to believe in miracles that I didn't personally witness. Just to get super real with you. I'm a doubter by nature. Why then do I believe so strongly in God and in Christ and in all the unseen things in which we are to have faith? Why indeed? See, it may not be the strongest evidence, and yet my faith is at least a small amount of evidence in and of itself. Now, my faith is certainly not evidence for anyone else to believe. But internally, my faith is the evidence of things unseen. It's kind of like, folks, I'm sorry, but I just know. I just know that it's true. Now, that won't hold up in a court of law, but it holds up in my heart. I see, that's where conviction grows. Parallel to this, I'll say it again, that God is the one who sparks my faith to life in the first place. And I think that's part of how this works, knowing that my faith really comes from Him, that there's no way I'd have it on my own, helps to refuel the faith that I have. Why on earth do I believe? Because God, thank you, God, for faith. Thank you for helping me believe in you. God doesn't waste anything. Did you know that? No, I believe he actually recycles our faith. 
What do I mean? I mean that the more conviction we have, the more reasons we find to have conviction. Because we know that our conviction, our faith, comes from God. Oh, well, then he must be there, right? By the way, what a miserable existence it would be, I think, not to know God. I pray for the lost every day. You should too. Look back at our text. Based on the meanings behind the original words, here's one way we could translate the second half of verse 1. Faith is conviction fueled by the evidence of things unseen. Faith is conviction fueled by the evidence of things unseen. As you know that unseen things can nonetheless leave behind evidence, and that evidence fuels conviction. Faith is conviction, strong conviction, in things unseen. Haven't you ever experienced the blessing, talking to believers now, the blessing of just knowing that God is at work? Just knowing. Virtually every miracle can be explained away if you try hard enough. But have you ever just known, deep down in your soul, that God did something? Have you ever known with conviction that God is there, that He's near? Or maybe that He's speaking or helping or doing something? Have you ever had a conviction fueled by this kind of evidence? I mean, sometimes I just have a hunch, right? I mean, that God's been at work. I just kind of say, do-do-do-do, you know. Or just, you know, throw out the, well, God is sovereign, you know, thing. Uh, or something general, even while internally wondering whether it was really God or just coincidence. But listen, there are other times, there are other times when I know that I know that I know. Now, folks, that's conviction. That's faith. Only that kind of conviction, in fact, is truly faith. I had one of those moments when I was in Haiti on a mission trip years ago. Some of you have heard this story, but it bears repeating. One night we traveled way out in the country, away from civilization. We headed for a small village church where God was really moving, mightily working. People were leaving the voodoo religion for Christ, and the church was experiencing revival. We set out on quite a long journey requiring four-wheel drive vehicles, traversing over deep ruts in the dirt roads, at one point even crossing a raging river. So yes, I was in heaven. <laughs> Wheeling in Haiti, are you kidding? Crazy fun. Now during the season I was in Haiti, it rained just about every evening. I believe it really it was every evening. It was supposed to rain this evening as well. We were told before we left that if it began to rain, we would need to immediately stop what we were doing and head back to where we were staying as quickly as possible. The river we had crossed would have become impassable had it begun to rain, say nothing of the dirt roads. We planned to show the Jesus film uh, in their Creole language. If you're not aware, this film has helped bring countless people to faith in Christ all over the world. We knew that many would come to the little church to see the movie. They had no electricity, of course, so we brought a generator, a laptop, and a small projector. Before we knew it, we had three obstacles standing in our way. First, the generator was broken on the rough trip out there. Thankfully, we just happened to have an electrician with us, and he was able to fix the problem within a few minutes. That's one obstacle down. Secondly, 
we forgot the speakers um, to use with the laptop. Now, there were about 200 people crowded in and around this little stick uh, shack of a um, church building. I'm sure you all know what onboard laptop speakers are like, but we prayed. And somehow, God allowed everyone to be still and hear the words. Even those in the back indicated they could understand. It felt like a miracle. Doesn't sound like that much, but in the moment, it felt like a miracle. And I'm telling you, God was there. He was palpable. Experiential evidence that I'll never forget. But then came the rain clouds. The sky grew dark, and there was just no doubt that it was going to pour. Rain seemed inevitable, but somehow I knew that God wanted me, the little me, to pray for the impossible. What else could I do? I went behind the building, and I uh, got on my knees in the rocky dirt. God gave me a level of faith that I do not normally have. I put that faith to work. I prayed my guts out that it would not rain. I tell you, the sun came out while I was praying. And folks, it, do, it did not rain. I shifted my prayer, asking that people would come to personal faith in Christ that night. After the movie, there was a time for response. About 15 Haitians came to the front and prayed with the pastor to receive Christ as their Savior. Some would say that I should not tell that story. I am not a miracle worker. I don't pray for weather changes often. <laughs> Basically never. But I know that I know that God gave me the faith and God answered my prayers that night. Does this mean I had the power to stop the rain that night or ever again? Absolutely not. It means God didn't want it to rain and he also wanted to grow my faith. But listen, if God had not given me that faith, I would not have had the faith to pray such a prayer. This kind of thing cannot be manufactured. That said, if I had not acted on the faith being sparked by God inside me in that moment, if, if I had been too afraid to get down on, on my knees in front of everybody to pray such a bold prayer with all my heart, or if I had not believed then I would have missed the awesome experience of partnering with God. As it was, my conviction was fueled by the evidence of things unseen, by the unseen God, that is. And my faith became even more assured by the experience. Faith is assurance. Faith is conviction. Now at this point in his explanation of faith, the writer of Hebrews turns from attempting to use other words to define faith to pointing out the results of faith. He begins to point out the benefits that true faith brings into our lives. So number three, we find out that faith brings approval. In verse two he says, for by faith the men of old gained approval. As we've already learned in this series, it was actually by faith that the people before Christ were saved. Old Testament saints are in heaven because they had faith in the salvation of God that would come in the Messiah. They looked forward to Christ in faith while we look back. As I put it last week, God routinely brings future realities to bear upon the present. 
Faith in the blood of Christ cleansed Old Testament believers the same as it cleanses us. Regardless of the time in history, understand from our text today that only faith brings the approval of God in our lives. Verse 6 says this, is, says, this, says this even more plainly. And without faith, it is impossible to please Him, for he who comes to God must believe that He is. But what kind of faith brings approval? Or what kind of faith pleases God? Any kind of faith in anything? Of course not. We can go back to our definition from verse 1 to find out what kind of faith pleases God. Faith is assurance. Faith is conviction. Faith is so sure and so empowered by God that it is evidence unto itself. Faith is not, hey, I think I'll believe in God just in case. That is not faith. And whatever that is, it won't make you okay with God. It won't be pleasing to God. It won't gain approval from God. That kind of so-called faith will not please God. So don't bother with it. But again, what kind of faith pleases God? I would say this, faith that is an assured conviction in Him pleases God. Starting next Sunday, we'll learn about this kind of faith as we get into the biblical examples of faith. But in preview, I'll tell you, we may find out that our own faith is a little bit lacking. I'm not sure our faith is often assured conviction in Him. Indeed, examples of the kind of faith that actually pleases God may leave us wondering what we're missing. It is true that if you want to please God or gain His approval, you must become a person of faith. What keeps us from walking by faith? Sometimes it's plain old fear disguised as wisdom. You know, I'm talking to believers right now mostly. What keeps us from walking by faith? What keeps us in the boat? There's a really good book called If You Want to Walk on Water, You Got to Get Out of the Boat. John Ortberg, it's a great book. What keeps us in the boat? What keeps us from walking by faith? I think we sometimes it's just fear disguised as wisdom. Maybe for you it's personal comfort with the status quo. Whatever the reason, to please God, we must walk in the kind of faith we see exemplified in the biblical heroes. More on that next week. From our text, we can also see number four, that faith brings understanding. Verse 3, by faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the Word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. I can't imagine looking at the evidence, particularly of the wonders of creation, and thinking it is only a testimony to some random so-called scientific process. There's nothing scientific about seeing the universe as a chance occurrence. That's more like blind faith, if you ask me. Naturalistic Darwinism, or any view that holds that everything can be explained naturally, is not technically science, but rather is a philosophy or worldview by definition, and not even one arrived at through scientific observation. To say such a thing as scientifically proven only downgrades science. No, naturalism is a theory driven by a desire to make God obsolete, having begun with the false presupposition that science must first rule out God to be science. The Bible says in more than one place that only a fool truly believes in his heart there is no God. Conversely, the Bible says a person of faith has understanding. From our text, a person of faith understands, or better yet, comprehends that the words, that the worlds 
were made by the supernaturally powerful Word of God. That the physical is a product of the spiritual. That what is seen is made by what is unseen. That there's something deeper running underneath it all, sustaining it. That the cause must be greater and more powerful than the effect. That we ourselves have meaning and purpose because of that cause. And the universe is unbelievably significant because it is created for a purpose by someone with obviously awe-inspiring characteristics. It's kind of the understanding that comes out of faith. But without faith, we're as foolish as the animals, having no ability to comprehend that there could be anything bigger than what we know, what we have seen with our tiny eyes on our tiny spot on a tiny planet. Show me someone with understanding, I will show you someone with at least some faith. There's a principle at work here. Those without faith typically think they know more, but they actually know much less. Faith is not the crutch of the mentally weak, but rather a conduit running from God into the minds of the strong. Faith brings understanding, because the giver of all true understanding is God. And those who do not believe in Him do not come to Him for the understanding they seek anywhere else. As created beings, there's no true understanding apart from that which our Creator gives. We are made in His image, but without Him, an image is all that we are. Spiritually dead and void of understanding. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually appraised. Lastly, and maybe the best part, Number five, faith brings reward. Verse six, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. First notice that those who come to God are those who believe in him. Faith is the very thing that actually allows us to seek after God. And without any faith, we simply stay away. But this is not the end of what is said here. The conclusive point is that seeking after God in faith brings reward. Faith in God ultimately brings reward from God. And I could go on here about why God would even write this to us if it were not meant to further motiv motivate our faith. But I want to focus instead on the nature of this reward. What is the reward mentioned in this verse? What does God have to give us? What reward does faith bring? You might be thinking of heaven, but the answer is way bigger than that. Actually, the answer is the very thing that makes heaven so great a place. The reward is God Himself. This is very clear in the text. Since the object being sought after is God, He must also be the ultimate reward. As He says in another place, those who seek Me will find Me. The point is that God is not bait and switch. He says, not only am I real, but those who come looking for me will be rewarded by receiving me. What reward could God give a person who's seeking him that would be better or more appropriate or more rewarding than himself? There's no greater reward than God. And if you're wondering about the other verse that says, no one seeks after God, what that means in context is that no one seeks after God on their own. But know that when God draws a person, he may very well respond. 
Otherwise, we might struggle to accept this passage where the clear assumption is that somebody, some people, will be coming by faith, believing. The important point is that for those with faith, God allows Himself to be found. And those who find Him discover that He is the ultimate reward. Think about this. There is only one person promising to hand out eternal rewards. Only one. There's only one being who is going to be handing out rewards at the end of this age. There's only one who has the power, the authority, and the desire to do so. He is the rewarder of those who seek Him. And you say, how do I seek Him? The answer, by faith. He who comes to God must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. Are you seeking Him? If so, that's faith. Are you regularly coming to God in your life? That's faith. In order to come to God, you must have faith in the unseen. This brings me to the million dollar question. We've talked about what faith is and we've talked about what faith brings into our lives. But some of you may have an even more primary question. You may be thinking, okay, sounds like faith's really great, but how do I get it? What if I just don't believe? That's a great question. To answer, answer it, let me start by explaining that you're asking this question means that you are in the category of one who has never been saved. Well, this is critical for you to understand. The very fact that you are asking this means that you have never had that moment of putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ to save you. How do I know? Because people who have been saved have the Spirit of God inside them. And so they're no longer asking this question. They might have moments of doubt or moments when they need to return to God for more faith. But they're not asking, what if I just don't believe? And that's very important for you to understand. You are a pre-believer and you are asking a good question. Thank you for being here. And now let me attempt to answer your question. You'd like to have faith, faith, but you just don't. Have it. Where can you find this saving faith of which I have spoken? The short answer is this, from God. The Bible is clear on this. This is clear in our text today, or you can check Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, to see that God gives us faith as a gift. When I was six years old, God called me. He moved in my heart. And He led me to receive the Savior, Jesus Christ, by faith. I know that God was speaking to my heart. And let me explain that when God speaks to your heart, it inspires faith, like nothing else can. Faith is a gift that He gives because He loves us and desires all men to be saved, 1 Timothy 2.4. And we should all remember that no one comes to the Father unless the Spirit draws Him, John 6.44. Okay, so then it's all on Him, right? Not exactly, because you see the Bible also says 
For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is, here's that word, evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks. In other words, they didn't come by faith. But they became futile in their speculations. And their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. How can I stop being a fool and get faith? Wait, did you seriously just ask that question? Know this, my friend. If you ask that question, God is at work in your heart. All faith, and even the desire to have faith, comes from God. But Romans chapter 1 also means that God has already done enough to inspire at least a spark of faith in you, and He is still doing His part, or you wouldn't be here today. And all of this means that it is now up to you whether to receive the faith He is offering or to reject it. Personally, I think Romans 1 means that there is a general revelation that can turn you ever so slightly toward God, and that even as you begin to do that, He is there to help you along with the rest of what can become saving faith in your heart. And I understand that this is an area of theological debate, but as your pastor, I would encourage you to simply remember it this way. Faith is a God-enabled choice. I'll stand on that. I've also said before that while faith is not forced, it is empowered. Faith is a two-way partnership. Without God's work in our souls, we're not going to just believe. That's true. No one seeks after God on his own, as the Bible says. Only Jesus saves. But as mentioned, the Bible also says that if they seek me, they will find me. And here in our text today, it says no one comes to God unless he believes, which implies that if he believes... He will come. So is our faith and our belief our own choice or is it completely caused by God? Here's what I believe and what I teach. Faith is a God-enabled choice. That's why I'm begging you to ask Him for help. As one person said to Jesus, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Let the theologians debate what part is you and what part is God. But I would say that even the fact that you are here and that you would wish to have saving faith is a thought process that is being influenced by God. He is here. He is speaking. He is leading. And so I'll say it again. Ask God for faith because faith is a God-enabled choice. Listen, what this means is that you do have a part to play in this. I do believe that 100%. God will not zap you with salvation against your will. I don't believe it. Salvation is never forced upon a person. So are you willing to trust in God and His promises? 
or you're going to keep choosing doubt. We never know precisely what God is doing, do we? Isn't there, is there, can we at least agree that there's a mystery when God is doing things, and how it exactly intersects with our own lives and our own will? We don't know. In general, we do know that God empowers faith because of love. The question is this, is God empowering your faith to trust in Christ for the first time today? God is the initiator of salvation, and that's important. The only reason we can believe as spiritually dead people is that God chooses to draw us to Himself by His Spirit. God seeks after us, not the other way around. And that's why I would say this to anyone who wants to know how to find faith, ask God for it. Keep on asking. Seek faith from God. Would you even do that if He wasn't there? I think not. But friend, hear this. When God gives you that spark of belief, or maybe it's that Romans 1 thing of just understanding some things by the the world we live in, or however you want to put it, you are going to have a choice. I believe that. And the more times you choose to reject Him, the harder your heart will, will become. Will you choose to trust, or will you choose to doubt? Will you choose the faith that is enabled by God, or will you choose to reject Him and miss out? Both your life on this earth and your eternity hang in the balance to your answer to that question. Without faith, it's impossible to please God, which is tantamount to saying what is so clear in the rest of the Bible, without faith, it's impossible to be saved. That's really what this means. I might also ask, if there is no choice to be made, what is the point of this verse and so many others like it? Why the explanation and the motivation about pleasing God and being rewarded if there's no choice to be made? if it's automatic. No, my friends, while the faith is a gift, the choice to receive it, or not, is yours. Faith is a God-enabled choice. Is anybody ready? If so, God got you to this point because He loves you. How will you respond today? I'm going to lead a time of prayer, and if there is anyone who would choose faith, you can pray in your heart along with me. Just tell him, God, thank you for working in my heart today. I, I hear your voice, and I want to respond. Help me take a step in my heart. I need your help to believe. I, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Turn to Jesus today. Lay down your doubt. Lay down your cynicism and your skepticism. Respond to what God is saying in your heart and say yes. I th I'm just going to throw it all in. I'm just going to put it all on God. I need, I need you. I need to be saved. I need to be saved from myself, from my sin, from my past, from my present, my future. I need to be saved. Jesus, would you save me today? I need you. Cover me with your blood. Let your sacrifice be applied to me today. No more doubt. No more fear today. I turn to you today. I trust in you. 
that you're enough. And thank you for all the times in my life when you've spoken. And forgive me for all the times when I've put you off. I've drowned you out. Thank you for loving me and continuing to reach out to me until this moment. And today, I surrender. Now, I know that nobody probably could pray all those words, but that's the kind of prayer you need to be praying. It might be three words. It might be just the last thing I said. As long as you know who you're talking to. Today, I surrender. He's the one that saves you anyway. It's not magic words. It's a, it's a belief. It's a conviction. It's assurance in your heart. I'm just, I'm just going to trust in Jesus for my eternity. He takes care of the rest. Lord, thank you for your word and the things that we can learn. For the rest of us who know you already, I pray that we would be uh, have an understanding today of steps we can take forward, of at least the goal, of the kind of faith that is pleasing to you, the kind of faith that gains your approval, and maybe realize that sometimes we're not really quite there with our equivocations and our maybe this and maybe that. Give us that assurance. Help us grow in that conviction that comes through all kinds of evidence that you're giving us. You are making yourself evident. Help us to respond in ways that help us grow in our conviction until we can't be silent anymore. We believe it so strongly. We're not ashamed, hiding, but that we can't help but tell others because we're so sure. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to Go Church's weekly sermon podcast. If you enjoyed the sermon, be sure to rate and review us. If you want to learn more about the ministry of Go Church or catch up on previous sermons, check out our website, www.gochurchpnw.com. You can also connect with Go Church on Facebook and Instagram.